This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Chris Underhill, founder and director of Basic Needs, an international charity that works to bring about lasting change in the lives of mentally ill people around the world. The organization has had an extraordinary impact, serving over 500,000 people, including more than 100,000 with mental illness, more than 80,000 caregivers, and approximately 350,000 family members of mentally ill people. Chris is a graduate of the University of London and also has earned a master's in science in international policy from the School of Policy Studies at the University of Bristol. Chris has been described as a serial social entrepreneur dedicated to improving the lives of marginalized people, both in the United Kingdom and around the globe. Over the course of his career, he has founded and directed three different citizen sector organizations, Thrive, an organization working with disabled people and medical professionals in horticulture, gardening, and agriculture. Action on Disability and Development, an organization focused on promoting self-advocacy among disabled people in the developing world, and Basic Needs, which is his current venture. Before his work at Basic Needs, Chris was also successful as the chief executive of Practical Action, an organization that works closely with some of the world's poorest people using simple technology to fight poverty and transform their lives for the better. Chris's extraordinary work has been recognized on numerous occasions, including through his designation in 2000 as a member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, as an Ashoka Fellow in 2012, and this is a fellowship experience that we both share, and most recently as a recipient of the esteemed Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship this year. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's a pleasure. I'd like to ask you to begin by sharing how you became focused on the plight of the underserved mentally ill around the world and how that interest became expressed through the work of basic needs. Uh, thank you very much. Um, well, it, uh, th- there are a couple of uh, ways in which this happened, but, but um, I think the most simple way of describing it is that I, uh, when I was a young person, my um, uh, wife and I went to serve as uh, volunteers in Zambia. This was way back in 1969, so a long time ago. And um, we uh, were newly married, and we uh, were hoping to have a child. And when we went to uh, on vacation, we went on to the um, neighboring country of Malawi, we went and had uh, the usual pregnancy tests and so on. And we were thrilled that we were blessed with uh, uh, an, an easy and early pregnancy. So we walked out of the um, hospital gates and there, right at the sort of hospital boundary of this great big African hospital, very busy hospital, with lots of noise and so on, cooking and all the rest of it, there was a cage. And in that cage were four, what I now know to be mentally ill men. And those people were being teased by the children and by other patients, actually, with sticks. So they were being made to jump up and down, and they were screaming. 
And so I, so I had this really sweet experience of knowing that I was going to be a dad in a, you know, in a while. My, my, the, the young lady who was born as a result, as a result of that was, is now my 40-year-old daughter, mm. eldest daughter. Mm. And, um, and I was just so shocked, you know, by the sort of opposite extreme feeling when I saw this uh, immense cruelty going on with these mm. mentally ill people. And that's where it all started, uh, Dave. That's where it all began. Mm. Um, it wasn't until a lot later, uh, until I'd researched and started a number of organizations, which you've mentioned in some part, mm. um, it wasn't until then that I really started to sit down with mentally ill people, often just where they were in the street, for example, in Accra, mm -hmm. in Ghana, and um, just talk to them and try and find out what really made them tick, what, was, what, what they were concerned about, what they were frightened about, what they were hoping to achieve. And um, it, was, it was at this later period that I then resolved to start an organization which would serve them. It's uh, such a powerful story. And just reflecting on that story and thinking about Ashoka's emphasis on empathy, mm. I think I can't imagine a story that more illustrates sort of the lack of empathy of a group of people for some people suffering and then your uh, empathic response to what you were experiencing and how that becomes the spark later on for this incredible work that you've done. So it's yeah. a wonderful image of confronting a system that can't feel something for people mm. with a different kind of response. So thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I, I know that one of the things that I find fascinating about your work, and I believe perhaps it's this element that has allowed it to scale so successfully, mm -hmm. is the thoughtful model that you have invented. I believe it's called the model for mental health and development. Do I have that's that right? Correct. Yes, you do. That's yeah. right. And, and your model has been adopted and promoted now by the World Health Organization. And is it true that that model was originally inspired uh, through a thesis that you had worked on at the School for Policy Studies? Yes, I have. Um, um, in fact, that uh, particular thesis was about uh, the defining moment when a group of very vulnerable people, in this case, uh, disabled people, um, be basically understand that they have actually become empowered. So I was trying to sort of reach out and touch, as it were, with my finger when that particular moment was. And, uh, and I, I figured the best way of doing it was to go in, in that particular case when I wrote the thesis to Uganda and work with organizations that I had been working with myself, you know, that we had been founding or, or supporting. And they were, they were a group of uh, women disabled and uh, persons and also a, a mixed group. One was in a rural area, one was in an urban area. And I asked them, you know, a, a series of questions which then led me to to the conclusions as to when they had become empowered, as it were. I also triangulated that with the story, the narrative coming from the development workers that I had managed at that time and that had seen the, the transformation uh, uh, quite literally in front of their eyes over the three years that they worked with them. So yes, it was an, that was an extraordinary experience. And, um, and uh, uh, although the thesis, as any 
master's thesis will be is flawed, right. <laughs> <laughs> flawed by the writer. <laughs> um, it, it nevertheless is an insight into yeah. uh, you know, how that thing happens. And, and you mentioned the word spark. And for me, there was a kind of spark there, which I could see happening, as it were, in, in the life of those two groups. I think one of the things, from my understanding and the little reading that I have done about the model, is the way that it reaches this diverse cluster of needs that people mm. who are mentally ill experience. And I wonder if you could share uh, briefly your perspective on that cluster of needs, medical, rehabilitation, family, and community. I think that's a that's a fascinating thing, especially in this world where we tend to look, I think a lot of what the medical field does is look at symptoms and then try to address symptoms in isolation from the context. Yes. Your work really turns that whole idea on its head and look, takes this very holistic approach. Uh, yes, could that, you talk about that? Yes, uh, with pleasure. And you're right. I think you've put your finger on the reasons as to why it's attractive to mentally ill people to be involved in that particular way of working. In essence, what we do is we respond to uh, a, a number of really important human, deeply felt human needs, um, which are, you know, that many mentally ill people, even if they have uh, managed to successfully stay at home and live with their folk or their, their uh, wife or husband or whatever, um, even if they have managed that, uh, they feel very lonely. And so that deep sense of isolation which must be of great interest to this mission about empathy um, that you're talking about with Ashoka. Um, they feel very, very lonely, and they are seeking some kind of um, some kind of way of being with others. And so, one of the great outcomes of this model for mental health and development is that people form self-help groups, and these self-help groups go on to do a number of different things very excitingly. Um, we have over 20,000 uh, mentally ill people, people with epilepsy, uh, in these groups now around the world. And, um, and, and not only do they find fellowship, um, but they also find uh, methods to be entrepreneurial. So they often start small joint businesses within these self-help groups. And, um, of course, they find a voice to advocate. And uh, the state does its best in many of the countries that we work in. And, um, and so advocacy helps to help the policymakers to sharpen and focus on the needs of mentally ill people. So, for example, um, the advocacy brings about a better supply of medicine mm -hmm. um, to very out-of-the-way health clinics and health posts and so on. Also, it brings about a more consistent supply because, of course, if you're a person who has a need for um, uh, medicine, it's generally going to be for a consistent amount of time, sometimes for life in some cases. And so, obviously, that's got to be uh, transported often very far, and it has to reach people where they live, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, that's only one part of it, the, the self-help of course, brings about all those other dimensions. And, and one of the things that attracts me most about this model, um, um, which um, I brought into life in the year 2000, 
um, with my good friend uh, Naidu, who unfortunately now has died. But um, what um, what I, attracts me most, I think, is is this capacity building element, which yeah. we've already discussed, and the livelihoods element, um, because we have uh, just we have achieved remarkably something in the order of um, 60% of our of our patient or participant volume that you mentioned in your introduction right. um, are involved in one way or another in a livelihood exercise. Mm. Some, sometimes it's very simple, they're just helping mum produce something, uh, but you know, mum wouldn't have been seen with them before. Right. So these are complex issues, it's there, and societal or community issues are often at the root of this. But she's now quite happy to have you along to be able to help make the food or or do the farming or whatever is her enterprise, you know, that's it. So at, at the very simple level, it's like that. And then at the more complex level, it's people returning to work. So we have a wonderful example, just to cite an example of Francis, who has gone back to being a teacher in northern Ghana, having been incarcerated by his community for two years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we have, of course, people who, um, in the spirit of Ashoka, who actually start enterprises, either social ones, because mm-hmm. of course they've been very touched by cruelty as well as by good fortune, so they often start something that is social and um, sometimes purely commercial. So, for example, people will go into bicycle mending. I think one thing to observe is that, like most people in developing countries, they they look for opportunities in enterprise usually within the uh, informal sector. Mm. And so, and so the example of a person going back to teaching, obviously in the formal sector, is is uh, less common, but nevertheless to be welcomed, of course. Right, right. I think one of the things that's also very interesting about your work is the way it shines a light on this. We know that even in the developed world, there are not enough services for people that are mentally ill and that those services lack integration. But I sense that through your work, you've really shined a spotlight on the this gaping need that there are many societies around the world where there's really no services at all uh, for people who are mentally ill. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that because I think many listeners would not understand the, the real seriousness of the plight uh, yeah. in some of these uh, areas that it's not that there's a broken system, there's actually no system. Yeah. Is that true? And it is pretty much true. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly a very useful way of, trying, of starting the conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very common to find, um, you know, one psychiatrist per one and a half million people, <laughs> you know, uh, of, of population, which is, of course, just dopey, you know. Um, it, that's just literally taking very few psychiatrists and dividing them by the population of the countries, you know. Right. Um, and this is a big illness, so, or rather it's a big collection of illnesses. You know, there's about um, 450 million people at any one time have mental ill health uh, in the world. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, just because of the iron hand of statistics, you know, with you know, many more people living in uh, low-income countries and, uh, and middle-income countries, and, of course, you're bound to find more mentally ill people in those countries where those systems are either uh, non-existent or very fragile. And so I always say it's about 360 million people in low-income and middle-income countries. You know, um, That's a rough estimation, but it's not a bad one. And um, 
Yeah, we find, uh, I think what the model does, and this is what we have found in the countries that we work in, what the model for mental health and development does is it obviously respects deeply and includes uh, anybody with um, the appropriate medical or psychological um, training. And uh, we are fully supportive of those individuals to, the, to such an extent that we think the model helps to optimize their skill. Mm. So, so basically, what we have managed to do, to use that rather funny phrase, we have managed to task shift. So in other words, a lot of uh, tasks that uh, nurses and, and the very rare number of psychiatrists, um, doctors based at um, district hospitals, etc., uh, what we have been able to do is to help them with their training where appropriate and then we have been able to uh, create a situation where community volunteers, um, non-specialized uh, nurses and um, development workers and a whole range of other people then carry on tasks, for example, to organize clinics, for example, to get people from A to B, for example, to um, actually uh, inform people that a clinic will be coming to their part of the world, you know? Mm. And, so the, and so the psychiatrist or the, um, mental, health, the, the mental health nurse um, is then able to concentrate on their core mission, on their core trade. And that, of course, has meant that we've been able to make the most of things. So at the level of, at the, level of the ground, at the level of, I am seeking treatment, is there someone who can treat me? Um, we have done our best to optimize the services. And incidentally, um, we have often found that the ministries of health we work have been generous and supportive of our work and very keen to make sure that uh, whatever resources they have are put at the disposal of it. Um, and, and of course, because it's such a widely uh, disadvantaged subject, we don't really work in countries where that generosity or that uh, willingness to partner wouldn't be there, you know? You can go where there's, an, where there's an interest and a willingness to partner. Yeah, we've had, yes. I mean, uh, we don't calculate it at the moment, uh, partly because I've run out of fingers on my hands. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we do do our own calculation of how many people we support and all that very much, very clearly, as you've already illustrated. Right. Um, but we find it harder to work out uh, what the generous contribution of others is in terms of in-kind in contribution. But, of course, that task shifting uh, does imply that uh, someone else is doing work which otherwise would have to be paid for or, or right. by us or done by us. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's very important to acknowledge that. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Ashoka Fellow Chris Underhill, founder and director of Basic Needs. So, 
if I can state this again to make sure that I understand it and to illustrate, I think, a point that we would want our listeners to focus on, hmm. uh, a, a brilliant thing about this model is that it doesn't require you to build incredible, incredibly um, large amounts of resources from the ground up, hmm. but rather your model becomes a catalyst to engage energy that's present in the system already yeah. and repurpose it to provide aid to these mentally ill people and their families. Exactly. Is that true? Now, yes. now so that they can live at home. Yes. Now, yeah. in doing some reading about the model, and you've touched on some of these things, but I had a specific question about it. There are these five components in the model. Exactly. Ca capacity building, community mental health, sustainable livelihoods, research, and then management and administration. Yeah. One thing that I find really interesting about this is, again, it's a systems approach to the problem. Mm -hmm. But the ability to do these things on parallel pathways mm -hmm. must have required a lot of learning in terms of how you create a process to get it going. Otherwise, you could be doing this forever. But you've somehow figured out a way to come in and get all these things working along a, a parallel path so they come together at once. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about how that's possible, because I'm sure there's some something pretty interesting and important going on there in the way that you approach the work. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, uh, I think there are a couple of things that immediately spring to mind. First, first of all is, by the way, that I've pinched most of this, uh, most of this model, or most of this idea of the model, from my days when I was a farmer. <laughs> Aha, okay, that's <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> Yeah, because I mentioned I was in Zambia, you know, um, centuries ago. Sure. And, um, uh, and uh, it, I was there actually as an agriculturalist. And, um, and so I, my early uh, work in Africa, both in Zambia and Zaire and, and a number of other places, uh, Upper Volta as it was then called, um, uh, was in the field of agriculture. And so the, the importance of stating that is that I learned about farmer training and how to organize people in their communities or invite them to organize themselves actually mm. in their communities uh, so that they formed um, essentially self-sustaining groups. Mm. These were groups that didn't need a lot of extra in intervention from outside, certainly needed no funding, um, and were able to kind of manage on their own. And I felt, well, if farmers can do it, and you know, and uh, and many other kinds of uh, people do it, why can't mentally ill people do it? And of course, by demonstrating that mentally ill people can indeed come together, you know, with with appropriate support and explanation and encouragement, because they feel vulnerable at first. Um, what is uh, amazing is that uh, far from uh, mentally ill people being quote unquote crazy they turn out to be people of great lucidity and, of course, great compassion and wisdom because of the insights that they've gained on their own journeys. So these self-help groups become enormously important as one of the ways in which what you might call um, uh, organizational capacity comes into the community. So it actually is generated out of the very people who you um, might have thought um, was not capable of doing that thing. And I think that's a very important fundamental. Um, the, the other thing is that uh, by liberating the medical professionals to some extent to be able to let them focus on their work 
we certainly have seen a tremendous enthusiasm and energy. People, people who train as psychiatrists love to work with mentally ill people. That's their, that's their vocation. Right. And, so, um, and so to be freed up from paperwork, to be freed up from a whole series of things, and to be able to do that is a joy for them. And they love, they love doing that. And no matter how busy they are, they always come to our camp, you know, our mental health uh, gathering, if you like, mm. where the diagnosis and uh, following up of treatment and so on is being done. So those are two points, I think. And then I think um, we use quite a lot of scientific approach. So, for example, we use um, the science of action research. Mm. Um, so we we get uh, members of the participants who are benefiting from the program and their family members. Uh, and particularly their primary carer, the person who's most associated in their family with looking after them when they're still in their recovery phase. We get them all together on a regular basis, right down at the grassroots, and we ask them to contribute data, which then flows through a particular set of systems with their permission and comes up and is then anonymized and is used for all sorts of research and management purposes, so we know how we're doing globally as an organization mm -hmm. and we can tell a person like you uh, how many people we benefit in any given quarter or any given year right. and then the other thing of course is that they are able to do what my friend Naidu used to call fine tuning or mid-course tuning mm -hmm. because they're able to actually look at the program that they are in in, in that they are participating in and they themselves uh, can say we advise we recommend we think that this program should now go a little in one direction or another. I'll give you a little example, if uh, yes, you please. will. So we were meeting. I was uh, um, very um, privileged to be meeting with a group of mentally ill people in central Uganda. We were in a very rural area. The people were meeting, and um, and I had a request to go and meet some of the uh, carers, the primary carers, as we call them. So mentally a person, they took, they took me to meet their mums and dads and wives and husbands and so on. Mm. And we all sat in a big circle and had a big discussion about what was going on and, and, um, and how the program was developing. And they told me what recommendations they were planning to make to the program manager. So that was fine. Mm. Then one person tentatively put up his hand and said, sir, we are very thin. Now, I thought, <laughs> what does that mean in this context? You know? Yeah. And in fact, at that time, HIV-AIDS was very prevalent in Uganda, and I thought it was a reference to them perhaps being sick with that uh, ah. dev devastating illness. It wasn't the case, however. He meant it in the more literal sense of just not, being, not having much uh, fat on him, you know. I see. Mm -hmm. So I said, um, so what does thin mean? And he explained. And then he said, you see, we are carers, and we don't have the benefit of being in the livelihoods program because the mentally ill persons are there. <laughs> uh, and so we 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 asked we then consulted the mentally ill persons who were there and they said they would really like to feel that the persons who had sacrificed so much of their time and and other resources money and mostly time that they that they could also benefit from the uh, income generation program that we have running alongside every one of our programs mm. and so uh, you know we had to measure it all out and think about it a bit but at the end of the day, now some of those primary carers in many countries have benefited from that gentleman's intervention. Hmm. He, he put up his hand and, and we listened, you know. And I think that's a very, that's a very important feature of this, 
of the functioning of this systems approach at ground level when you're using the resources of the community to make it work. Right. When I was start, started to read about it, and you could see immediately even in the definition, when you mm. expand the definition and you say, well, we're also supporting caregivers and mm. families, mm. you know that you're attending to the entire ecosystem. That also is what gives it its sustainability and yeah. its scalability because yeah. you, if you had to fund all the resources required for the solution, mm. it couldn't possibly happen. No, it wouldn't be no, enough money on earth to do that. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, it's a big, it's a big number, that's for sure. Right. Yes, right. that's right. Mm. One of the things that I read about which I, in your work, which I thought was very interesting, and I think it ties into this theme that you are talking about, about engagement, which is a word that you, you use the word animation. Mm. And, mm. and that anim that process of animation, which once I read about it, I think I understood, and it's really related to some of the educational theories of Paulo Freire and uh, mm. Augusto Boal. I have that right? Am I in yes. the right vein? Yes. 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 And, and we, we have other, other descriptors that we use for it in, in, in the United States, but I, I think it's a very important element mm. of what you do, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how animation is a tool for mm. developing this kind of citizen community engagement that then is so integral to the solution. Sure. If, if um, one um, reverts to the metaphor of a crucible, mm -hmm. um, in a sense the, the program with its, uh, or rather I should say the model of, for mental health and development sits in, in a crucible. And the crucible uh, contains two elements which are vital to the success of the program. One is partnership. Mm -hmm. So you know that, and um, many of um, many of the Ashoka fellows will be aware of how our partners operate and and work, and uh, they will have many examples of good practice in partnership management. Right. And, and the other and the other element in the crucible is uh, animation. So animation is a form of, uh, as you and you are absolutely right in in where you've rooted it, mm. and what attracts me is that here is a southern practice, you know, using uh, using the um, idea in terms of hemispheres, you know. Right. Um, here is a southern practice, in other words, something coming out of a low-income country, which originally was Brazil, of course, mm. um, and affecting us in so many different ways in so many different places around the world. And so animation is, uh, to put it simply, it's a form of facilitation, of course, but it's where the animator, um, for which read facilitator, so it's where the animator uh, feels that with experience and judgment, they can actually situate themselves not in a neutral position, but uh, on the side of the poor, as Ferreri would have put it. Yeah. So, in, so in this case, my animators put themselves on the side of the mentally ill. Mm. And, in, and in fact, uh, paraphrasing from Ferreri, I actually exhort them to walk shoulder to shoulder with uh, mentally ill persons. Mm. Now, this is a strong picture because most people run away from the mentally ill. Right. Uh, uh, most people, by the way, think they're going to catch mental illness. They think it's a... <laughs> You see, if, yes. if you don't know about it, and if, yeah. you're, if it's not part of your understanding, then you think you will catch it, that it will become contaminatable. So to walk shoulder to shoulder, uh, um, just like giving voice, those two phrases have very powerful evocation when you're talking about persons who society thinks of as being 
carrying a, cat, uh, a transmissible disease and also people screaming, mm. apparently, in a mad or lunatic sort of way. So animation has, therefore, a very strong evocation in that sense. And so what we do is we, we use the animator to challenge ourselves, of course, to challenge the mentally ill persons to think differently and to take action when they need to. But of course, if in most groupings that you would imagine in a, in a community context, you have many members of the community there other than just the mentally ill. It's, it's, um, that, that, that's the nature of community work. And so what you find is that uh, the animator can also challenge or help to challenge or help people to challenge themselves mm. in such a way that they begin to question their activities, their attitudes from before. I saw this happen um, beautifully in Bihar in uh, northeast India uh, a little while ago. That was when Naidu, my, the gentleman I referred to, was still alive and very active. And he had a big group of people. It was raining like mad, and they were all inside this, well, what was like a glorified shack with the sort of uh, the roof straining and heaving in the wind. It was like a monsoon. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was talking, you know, at once as usual, which is a good sign. And um, and he he then asked this young man to step forward, and he described the horrible incident of someone throwing a stone at him and the stone bruising his head and really hurting him. And he said how hurt he'd felt both physically but also personally. Mm -hmm. And another young man then stood, stood forward after a silence, which was just sort of racked by the wind and the rain and everything. But through that, there was this kind of silence as everybody thought about that uh, incident. Mm -hmm. And the boy said, I'm the one who threw that stone. Ah. So then there was, all, there was exactly the reaction that you've given. Mm -hmm. You know, exactly that reaction um, in a slightly more Bihari accent, maybe. Right. And, um, and people were like, oh, how cruel of you, and this and that, and so on and so forth. And so then Naidu stepped forward as the animator in that context, and he said, wait. And he said it in such a way, his body language, his hand went up to stop the conversation. You know, he's, uh, he spread his palm out, and everybody went, Whoop! they all went silent suddenly like that. And then he said, now let us really look at this. So then they analyzed it. They didn't, um, of course, they didn't um, victimize the boy who had the courage to step forward. Right. Um, but he stood them next to each other, these two boys, who were roughly the same age, about 19. Mm -hmm. And uh, he stood them next to each other. And one had a red shirt, one had a yellow shirt. And so I just said, you know, what has red shirt told us? You know, and what has happened with yellow shirt? And then it sort of went on like that for a while. Right. And everybody learned. And uh, attitudes change. You could, you know, it's not often that you're present when you actually see a whole group of people from different walks of life within one community suddenly, and I use the word advisedly, suddenly change their attitude. Embedded in what you just said in that story is such a powerful illustration of empathy and how you build empathy. And I think that there's something in this practice of animation and particularly in that vision of people standing shoulder to shoulder, which really speaks to that idea of how we build empathy and how empathy is so critical in movements like this because mm. moving people from uh, another way I heard it described uh, in the literature I think it this is a phrase from Augusto Boal he said mm. that we change people from being spectators to spect actors mm. 
Oh, and, nice. <laughs> yeah. And but to become an actor, you know, really requires that engagement and mm-hmm. understanding of the situation of the person who's being helped or being victimized. Yeah. And um, exactly. I think that transformation you just described is so um, illustrative of mm-hmm. the way that empathy is in, deeply embedded in, in, the, in this model and this work. Yes, absolutely. The geographic scope of your work is so impressive. I mean, countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Australia. Could you give us just a little thumbnail sketch of how the program evolved to have such a global reach? Yes. Uh, Well, I I guess this will kind of resonate for people who have been, uh, you know, invited to be Ashoka Fellows over the years. Mm. Um, because at the heart of the at the heart of the decision, the strategic decision as to where to work, lies just several things. The first one uh, is leadership, mm-hmm. and we will uh, we will not run a program in any country, however much the country needs us, unless we have leadership from that country that we can use. There's only one exception to that, but um, which we have for historical reasons, got. But in every other case, you know, the Ghanaian program is run by Ghanaian ladies and gentlemen. Mm. The Ugandan program is run by Ugandan ladies and gentlemen, and so it goes on. And um, and that's, that's, right, that's true of all the countries we work in. And I think what I try to do is I try to find the... I try, obviously, I'm aware of the country that needs it. And I, then I try to find the leadership that would really be emblematic that would really understand the cultural situation and that at the same time ha- would have that understanding of development practice, particularly development practice such as you and I have just been sharing, mm-hmm. um, you know, animation and so on, mm-hmm. animation and partnership, and the way in which that whole wheel of the model for mental health and development then goes into place. Um, so leadership would be the first point. Um, a more conventional um, Analysis of need would be the second point. So your point about systems and and places which have very little um, mental health system in place. Mm-hmm. We will we generally uh, choose our programming where uh, where there's a reasonable chance of the government feeling sympathetic and interested in what we're doing. So that's the third third point. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and I think those are the sort of major three. Mm-hmm. So that does lead to a slightly eclectic throw, as it were, across the, the globe. Right. Um, but um, but it does mean that wherever we surface, we are uh, present with very strong leaders. And and what you notice is that as the organisation has got more mature, we're now about 13 years old. We, um, you know, we find that our our own leadership, uh, Peter from Uga- from Ghana, Tina from Uganda, Shoba and from uh, India, and um, uh, Dr. Mani from India, it goes on, Tam mm-hmm. from Vietnam. You find them showing up in all sorts of different conventions and meetings and workshops, and they're always, of course, talking about the practice of what of how to work with mentally ill people in communities. Mm-hmm. So Tam in Vietnam has, was invited by the WHO and by the Ministry of Health to work on an evaluation of the National Mental Health Program alongside a group of distinguished people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so you keep finding these these very few persons, but not very many at the end of the day, right? Um, you know, kind of surfacing, and that sort of proves that the leadership emphasis has been so important in the promotion of this work. So to go back to the agricultural metaphor, it's really mm. about finding that fertile ground and then planting the right seeds, and then you sort of step back and watch it unfold. Yes, because we do manage from a distance. I mean, of course, we have uh, regular management meetings. On a, my direct, I have a director for operations, and she right. obviously takes people through their normal uh, processes and procedures um, on a um, on a monthly and then quarterly basis. And and our, and we have uh, got an interesting model of organisation, which is that um, our, all our research data all our performance-based data goes into two offices, one in Sri Lanka and one in Bangalore. Mm. So we have reduced costs quite considerably, or rather not incurred cost, more likely, um, by having very smart people based in those two uh, countries um, to be able to help us with our management. And that, of course, has been enormously helpful as well. But you're right. I think that is a an appropriate metaphor. What is your vision for the future of mental health services for the underserved around the globe, and how do you see basic needs playing a part in achieving that vision? Well, you mentioned earlier the World Health Organization, and they have got a, a very important uh, program, which which is um, uh, you know uh, which they are leading on. And incidentally, the, 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 the small and very underfunded um, uh, um, directorate at, at headquarters at the World Health Organization that is concerned with this particular mental health problem is a fantastic uh, resource to those of us who are trying to do practical things on the ground. It's, um, it's, uh, it's, um, they're, they're extraordinary how few of them there are and how, and how well they serve, you know. So it's not often that you hear an NGO type like me praising the UN. But, yes. <laughs> but, um, but there you are, you see. Um, so I, I think my vision is as follows, that we need to continue to help the WHO to promote its major program, which is called Mental Health Gap, MHGAP. Mm. And that is, that's got um, lots of practical ideas, which we contribute to, as you've already said. And it's also got uh, research and policy ideas, which, which we have contributed to as well, incidentally, but which many others contribute to as their major uh, area of contribution. So that's got to be very important. That we, uh, what we mustn't do is have a kind of fragmented approach to this problem because the resources are so slim. So it's very important for us to put our modest resources to the wheel of the resources, which are also modest, of the World Health Organization, and so it must go on. But at the end of the day, we have to have a humane approach to supporting mentally ill people so they can live at home or so they can make a home in which to live. Uh, we must make sure that they don't become institutionalized. And there are some terrible institutions still around the world which um, are you know, um, difficult places, very under-resourced places. And anyway, most enlightened uh, a psychiatrist will tell you that you know people should only have very short stays, if at all, in institutions these days. Mm -hmm. So we must make sure that um, the fewer the better go into hospital and that they come out quickly. Um, and we must uh, make a contribution, all of us must make a contribution to this 
to this uh, job of resource maximization or optimization, task shifting, making sure that people who are trained uh, get to be able to be exposed. And of course, as you can tell from the previous uh, few minutes that we've been talking, basic needs feels it can make quite a big contribution to that. And, um, and we are you know, very happy to do so and to see ourselves as players amongst other players um, so as to be able to do that. That said, we are one of the larger uh, deliverers of, of uh, practical programs on the ground, and we're very proud of that achievement, of course. Uh, Chris, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I wonder if you might, from the perspective of being a serial social entrepreneur now with many, many years of practice and experience, mm. offer some wisdom to some of the listeners who may be beginning their journey in doing this mm. kind of work, recognizing that there are many failures and difficult moments in the journey, more that are, than are often revealed in the afterglow that comes from making progress. Mm. And I wonder what you could share with our listeners in that regard. Well, um, I've got so experienced that I know that anything I have to offer is probably pretty useful. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and um, and that's not false humility. Um, uh, I do I do appreciate that um, this is a difficult field, and that most of the subjects that um, Ashoka Fellows are working on, whether they are in the startup or other phases, that they they tend to choose difficult fields and. And because of the nature of Ashoka's selection process, they tend to be working in groundbreaking areas, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so I think the first thing is to follow your. The first thing is is to follow your intuition, your gut. Mm -hmm. it, it is to be. It is to appreciate yourself as a creative individual as much as a scientific or organizational expert, mm -hmm. and um, and to and to value the creativity that you have within you as much as you might value other skill sets, which are also important. Having said that, most social entrepreneurs find themselves to have, um, to be polyvalent. And, uh, you know, and you can characterize that in a sort of um, offhand way by saying, you know, on the one hand, you're really good at cleaning up the cups, you know. <laughs> and at the other hand, you know, you can run a strategy meeting. Right. Um, but it's probably important to start to see what you're good at uh, within that very broad spectrum as soon as it's possible. You know, there are many examples of startups where gen genuinely the individual finds themselves doing not only too much, but a too broad an accomplishment, which then means that they're probably not able to focus to any great degree. And whilst I think over-focus, meaning to be so precisely fixed on a point in front of you that you ignore other things is probably wrong for a social entrepreneur because you still need to be aware of your context always. Mm -hmm. um, it is probably true that it's helpful to start to get uh, people around you, whether they're volunteers or staff persons, or the staff persons of other people's organizations, so that's where the partnership thing comes in so well, who can really make a difference to your vision and uh, you know I've been very blessed by that. Um, you know, with with uh, Shoba, who is my um, policy and practice director in India, who runs our global research services, and with uh, Jane Cox, who runs um, my operations. So she's our operations director. Those two individuals alone very ably sum up, uh, 
you know, the importance of having people around you who can do the work much better than you yourself can do it. Right. So there's a big there's a big temptation to want to do everything, but you have to have the wisdom and the humility to build that team around you, and that yeah. that leads to success. Leads to success, and you must also accept the implied or actual direct criticism of you. Right. Um, and that's not easy sometimes, especially if you've been fighting your own corner for a long while Yeah. Um, and um, feel, frankly, a bit lonely in it. Um, and so it's very important, however, in, if um, crit- criticism is offered in friendship, you know, as a proper support, uh, then it's, it is important to accept it. And, and to build on it, not necessarily to act on it. That's your job, to make a difference and to make a judgment about that. But nevertheless, it would be important to give it wise consideration. Ah, terrific wisdom. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. If people want to learn more about basic needs and support mm-hmm. your work, listeners can find you on the web at www.basicneeds.org. Is there any Correct. other way that people should reach you? We are. We have our own Facebook book page, as you would expect, and we and we now have our Twitter account as well. Basic Needs International is the Twitter account, and um, and the Facebook is uh, just you know dial in Basic Needs and you'll get it. Um, but I think the a good starting point is the website. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for your extraordinary work and your leadership in this field, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.